Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on 89.9 FM and at WERU.org. My name is Holly Cedarholm, and I'm your host for today. We'll be discussing seed saving as well as fruit tree propagation via grafting. Up first, I'll be speaking with Will Bonzel. Will gardens and saves seed in industry Maine. He is the author of Will Bonzel's Essential Guide to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening from Chelsea Green Publishing, and is also a regular contributor to Mocka's quarterly publication, The Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener, as well as a workshop presenter at the Common Ground Country Fair. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for having me. When did you first start saving seed and why? Well, I started saving seed basically the year I bought my land, moved to the farm and started gardening because my whole obsession at that time was self-sufficiency in many respects, not merely growing my own food, but growing the seed for the food, growing the fertilizer for the food and so on. And so even though my first garden was all seeds that came from commercial catalogs, I was determined that as soon as possible, I was going to keep growing those same varieties, but be saving my own seed. That was long before I knew anything about rare endangered heirloom seeds, just just simply for the economics of it, being self-sufficient. So you mentioned self-sufficiency and economics as two reasons to, to save seed. What are some of the other reasons that seed saving is important? Well, some of them I didn't know at that time, but just for example, I ran into some varieties that an elderly man here in town, and he had a lot of stuff in his garden that was very interesting. Some of it that did not come from any commercial source. A lot of it was old varieties that local people kept going. One example being the cowhorn potato and a few other things like that, which were not available off the shelf, so to speak. And so I was very intrigued to find out there was a whole world of stuff out there that was not readily available to people that was part of our heritage, family, community. And then that made me realize that if we're going to keep this stuff going. I can't go to the catalog every year. I have to save my own seeds. And also I found that some varieties that I grew were uniquely adaptable to my system, to either my tastes, my my cooking, my style of gardening, the climate. They particularly suited my niche. And they were not generic varieties, so to speak. And so again, if I wanted to keep those going, I had to save seed from them. So saving seed varies from crop to crop. And I know that you teach a lot of courses and you write about seed saving. So when you're thinking of talking about seed saving for beginner seed savers in our climate in the Northeast, what are some of the things that beginners need to know? And what are some of the crops that they might explore first? Probably the most straightforward answer to that is I would say the crops that you're growing anyway to eat. In other words, if you're used to having this food on your table, then you should be saving seeds. A lot of people get into saving something because it's interesting to them. In order for seed saving efforts to be more sustainable, they should be yoked with your seed, your eating habits, your, what you're used to having on your table. Now, if one is starting off, as you say, every crops are all different. Some are more complicated than the others. I always urge people to start off with crops which are number one, self-pollinating. So you don't have to worry about them crossing, isolating all those issues that come up. You can just put them all in your garden. You could have 10 varieties of beans or tomatoes all next to each other, no problem. And secondly, it's good if it's a variety which is an annual. 
You plant it in the spring, you harvest it in the fall, you go to Aruba for the winter, no problem, you forget about it, you're all done, as opposed to biennials and other things like that. Uh, it's good to start with things like beans and tomatoes and such simple, straightforward crops as that. And when you're starting with seed saving, it's also important to know whether or not you're working with like an F1 hybrid versus an open pollinated crop. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's extremely important because F1 hybrids, which aren't always identified as such, but nowadays most catalogs will, will say that partly because they're proud of the fact, but F1 hybrids are varieties which do not come true to type. People say you can't save seed from them. Well, technically you can save seed, but the seed will not be true to type. And one of the things that we need to know when we plant seeds, we need to have some realistic expectations of what we're going to get. We need a fair amount of uniformity and a fair amount of predictability. And that can be carried too far. But if, you, if you're planting F1 hybrid seeds, it's going to be a crapshoot. It's going to be all over the map. You have no idea what you're going to get. So one realistically can't practically save uh, seed from F1 hybrids, unless you're planning on being doing a plant breeder, which is a whole whole other ball of wax, which I don't think we have time to talk about today. But it's a welcome people to go in that direction. But that's not where you want to start. So assuming you have a self-pollinated annual, so say you've got an heirloom variety of beans or an heirloom variety of tomatoes that you're already growing for your own table and you want to get into seed saving, where do you start? Yeah, and the example that you're giving, something like beans or tomatoes, are fairly straightforward because the things you have to do to save seed of those things are the things you're doing to grow them. You start the seeds, you plant them, you do all the stuff you would ordinarily do. It's just that you carry it another step further. Some of your plants, you let them go by. Now, in the case of tomatoes, you ordinarily let your tomatoes become ripe anyway. But let's say in the case of something like green beans, ordinarily you'd pick them at the green stage, which is immature. You may be growing them for green beans, but if you're saving some for seeds, then you have to let those go by. So they're useless to eat. Same thing with cucumbers, for example, and zucchini. Some of those things which, at the stage you eat them at, it's not their mature stage. You have to let them uh, go sometimes much further along than that. Same thing with sweet corn and same thing with uh, peppers, a lot of things like that. You have to let them get ripe. And then you have to harvest them and they have to process them, which is a whole other, whole other matter. Let's get into some of the harvesting and processing that's involved in seed saving. Most of the things we're talking about now are kind of generic things for every crop because we don't have time to take a grow by crop in detail. But so you harvest the fruit, let's say it's a tomato. Then you harvest the tomato. It should be ripe enough to eat, preferably. If it's overripe, past being ripe to eat, so much the better. If it's gotten again, kind of soft and mushy, it just means the seed is riper. And if it's just ripe when you harvest it, it's good to leave it on the windowsill maybe for a few more days to get a little overripe. That's ideal, not critical, but ideal. Then there are basically two systems of processing seeds, depending on the crop. And one is, most are done by a dry process, where you let the plant um, mature and dry. It'll get all brown and yellow and the leaves and all the parts come brittle and crispy and crumbly and all that. And, you, and those things, including the pods or the seed heads or whatever, those, you harvest them, get them very, very dry, and you simply, well, we call it threshing, but in this case, it's often just rubbing them between your hands or something like that. You crush them or break them so the seeds are separate from their parts. Then you winnow them, which basically means if you're doing a small scale, you put it in a bowl and you either blow it, hopefully they don't get a lot of stuff blowing back in your face, or put it between two bowls, two buckets, and then a light breeze, so that that stuff all blows away and you end up with nothing but pure seed. The thing that makes that relatively easy 
is the fact that with no exceptions that I know of, seeds are always the densest part of their respective plant. So you can count on the seeds falling down into your bowl and your other stuff blowing away. The only exception is crops, some crops which are aerodynamically, like parsnip seeds, even though they may be denser than the parts because of the little flakes, they'll blow a lot. So, but basically threshing and winnowing is the basic processing thing for dry crops. There's only a couple of things which have to be done by a wet process. And we're usually talking about tomatoes or cucumbers. Think of tomato seeds. They have that little kind of gooey bit around them, kind of like a frog's egg. That's the amnion. It's, that's where a lot of nutrients are stored for the seed. But you don't want that. In fact, if you scoop those seeds out with that stuff on them and dry them that way, which many people do, they'll probably be good for maybe a year. They won't keep, you want some, you could, tomato seeds should be storable for many years. I've had tomato seeds be stored for 10 or 12 years and still be viable. But that's only if they're processed correctly. If you take those seeds and get rid of that amnion bit, then they'll keep much longer. And the other thing is when you plant them, if they have that bit of goo on them, they'll tend to harbor spores for damping off and other diseases if you don't do that. So the way of doing that is fairly simple. You scoop out all those little guts, the little the cucumber seeds or the tomato seeds, into a bowl or Dixie cup, depending on how much you've got, and put them on a, ideally a nice warm, shiny window is perfect. Let them sit there and ferment. And people ask, how do I know how long enough to, to ferment? Like two, three days, maybe enough, maybe not. I say the general rule is when your significant others start saying, get those things the hell out of here, or you see little fruit flies going around, that's, that's your cue that they're ready enough, okay? So then you take those and put them in a larger container and add a whole lot of water to it, several times that amount of water. Break up all the, if they're clumpy at all, break it up with your fingers, slosh it around. And if you put it, say, in a jar, for example, and you slosh it around, then the stuff will swirl around in that jar. As you watch it, you'll notice that the seeds will be tending to go to the bottom of the jar. And all the rest of the stuff, the pulpy, what was flesh and stuff, the goo, will tend to spiral to the top. And so you carefully decant that, pour that off. Be careful, don't overdo it because you may lose a lot of seeds too. But you just get the bulk of, let's say half of it gone. And then do it all over again. Add more water and do it again. Each time you're getting less and less left over and more and more pure seeds in the bottom. You do it enough times so what you have in the bottom is basically all pure seeds and clear water. And you pour off that clear water and then I put the seeds uh, in a strainer and press out the extra seeds, put them on a paper towel or newspaper or something to dry for several days so they're very dry. That's the wet process, and that's for basically for cukes and tomatoes. You talked about storing it and that having effect on the shelf life of the seed. So you want your seed to be viable, definitely for the next season and beyond that. So you don't have to save seed every single year of a certain crop. So how do you store the seed for maximum viability? We would like to have these seeds last as long as possible and be viable. And that varies terrifically from species to species. I've had beet seeds be 20 years old and germinate, incredibly enough. And part of the reason for that, by the way, is a beet seed or a charred seed, it's not a seed. It is actually a dried fruit. If you look at it, it's kind of like a strawberry. It has all the seeds are embedded in the surface of it. So every beet seed is actually several seeds which is why no matter even if you plant them singly, trying to be very careful to make them go as far, you're still going to have thinnings for beet greens either way. But anyway, those are very good for longevity. Tomatoes are very good for lasting a long time. After all, they're barely domesticated weeds anyway, and they'll keep a long time. The other extreme perhaps is maybe parsnips. Parsnips are like 
really pushing it. I came in for three years, even in the ideal situation, is pushing it. I try to grow my net every, every second or third year at least, which is problematic for me because I have a collection of about 80 or so parsnip varieties, and that means I need to be able to isolate, which we'll talk about later, isolate them by enough distance for at least 20 or 30 of them every year. So those are things that have a very poor viability. But given whatever the viability is, to go back to your original question about how to lengthen that, the key is, first of all, the processing that we talked about before is make sure that it's done thoroughly so the seeds are thoroughly dry, very thoroughly dry. A better to dry than the slightest bit of moisture will be bad for them. If it takes longer to do it, so be it. So once they're as dry as they need to be, you want to store them. I, there's two factors that are important for storing seeds. One is dry and the other one is cold or cool. So the ideal temp would be to get them at like a very few percent moisture and store them way below freezing. That'd be ideal. They may not be practical. But the thing that's most important is dry. It'd be better to have them very dry and not so cold than to have them a little damp and not so and colder. So once you get these things ready to store them, then the usual way is to put them in a seed packet, put them in your seed drawer and keep them until next year. And that's if you're only doing it for a year or so, that's fine. But there's no reason why most of these things shouldn't be good for several years. And the same thing applies if you want to buy bulk seed. Let's say you go to the seed company and you get a really good deal if you want to buy your carrot seed by the ounce or by the pound even. And you know you're going to use it, but it might take five years to use it. That's fine. But make sure you store those in such a situation where they'll be good for five years. And the key thing, again, is if you store them at a low temperature, like if you can store them in your refrigerator or better yet, in your freezer, then that's really ideal. They'll keep for two or three times as long as they would under ambient conditions. But here's the big caveat with that. Sometimes people think you can take, let's say you've got a canning jar with tomato seeds in it and you've got it in the freezer. Come getting on toward February, March, whatever, getting ready to take some seeds out and plant them. You take them out and set them on your kitchen table. You open the lid. You take out a pinch of seeds to plant. And then the rest you're going to put back in the, you put the cap, the lid back on and put them back in the freezer. Ah, uh, bad idea. You've already done serious damage to those things because it may seem like their kitchen table, the air in your kitchen is very dry, but it's got more moisture in it than those seeds. And since they are much lower temperature than the air temperature, then that, that whatever dampness is going to condense on those seeds. So when you put them back away, they may look just the same. It's only been five or 10 minutes, but they are now significantly damper than they were when you put them in. So the remedy for that is quite simple. Take the jar out, put it on your kitchen table, and leave it there for 10 minutes or 15, whatever, so the seeds get to be the ambient temperature. We would like to keep them cold and never bring them up to a warmer temperature, but for Venice, it gets, that's much less and less critical than have them get moisture. So leave them, before you won't take the lid off, leave them on the table till they get room temperature. Then take the lid off, take out the seeds you want, and put the, the cap back on. Then put them in the freezer. It makes all the difference in the world. Then they may keep, I've had seeds keep from some things for eight or 10 years, which ordinarily might be good for two years. Again, people will often tell you, particularly extension agents and some teachers that will tell you, you shouldn't save your seeds here. If you're only good for one, you go back to the seed company every year. Well, the main people that will tell you that are people that have, uh, have seeds to sell. You can, uh, you can keep seeds for long. And if you're saving your own seeds, very likely in any given season, you're going to have much more seeds than you need next year. You're going to have enough for several years so why not keep it for several years and again it's the key to that is those things i just mentioned and if you're able to keep seed for several years 
you can also isolate by time if you're not saving the same seed crop again and again. So for instance, we didn't get into some of the more complicated wind or insect pollinated crops yet, but with like squash, for example, there are multiple species of squash and you might be growing a variety for your table, say the cucurbita pepo species, and you only want to have one of those in your field at a time. So if you are able to save enough seed and freeze it, you don't necessarily have to save it year after year. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how isolation plays into seed saving, because we talked a little about beans and tomatoes not needing it, but what about some of those crops that people need to consider isolation for? Definitely. Let's go there now. First of all, let's make a general summary of which things need to cross-pollinate and which don't. Um, unfortunately, those that, need, that do cross, they're the problems, are more common. Those that are self-pollinating and therefore don't need to be isolated at all. In Maine, I generally find with peppers, some people say in par some parts of the country, peppers can cross readily. Here, they do a little, but rarely. The main vector for those, in my experience, is they're, they're, they're not wind-pollinated. They're basically pollinated by insects, in particular, bumblebees. Well, bumblebees are big fat guys. They don't, they don't travel very far like a honeybee would or something. So I find 50 or 100 feet is ample. For the, to keep those separate. But some other things, the brassicas like cabbage and kale are pollinated by honeybees and they can travel a long distance. Things which self-pollinate, generally I, I consider beans, tomatoes, peas. Peas and beans are great that way. Tomatoes generally don't, except for so-called potato leaf varieties. There are some, a lot of the heirlooms are potato leaf varieties. They have kind of big, broad lobed leaves, not the fine ferny leaves. And a problem with those is because of the morphology of the boy parts and the girl parts, they, they can easily be cross-pollinated with other, other things. But most tomato varieties work just fine. They'll self-pollinate. Lettuce is good that way. Endive is good that way. They'll all self-pollinate. Most of the other things, all the cucurbits you mentioned, squash, cucumbers, melons, they will all cross-pollinate within their species, which we'll say something about in a minute. Corn, of course, will and all of the biennials that I can think of, carrots, parsnips, turnips, cabbage, kale, all those things, they'll all cross-pollinate within their species. Those are all, mostly I think the ones I mentioned are all in, uh, insect-pollinated. So that has a lot to do with how you do it. Beets and chard, on the other hand, are wind-pollinated. That's just corn. So there's a lot of difference between how far pollen will travel on the wind and how far it will go on the feet of a fly, let's say, or honeybee. But depending on what that, if it's, if it's a cross-pollinator, we've established it in order to keep that variety true to type, so you'll get predict what you're going to get next year, then we need to keep it pure from crossing with another plant of the same species. And here's where it can get a little bit more complicated because it, it's important that you know that beets and Swiss chard are the same species, beta vulgaris. We see them as two different vegetables. They see each other as bed partners. They can and will, will freely cross-pollinate and you'll get something which is neither a beet nor a chard. Be very disappointing. It's uh, also helpful to know that, uh, that this can work for you. If you know that the, what we call the cabbage family are actually not the family, they're the same species. And I'm talking about the brassica oleraceus. I'm talking about cabbage, kale, collards, uh, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, broccoli, cauliflower, I'm not sure I've got them all even then, that big group. They're all the same species. So again, they will all intercross and give you some hodgepodge useless thing. They have to all be separated from each other. But on the other hand, what can help us if we know, for example, that 
squash, as you mentioned, probably the biggest group of squash that people grow in Maine is pepo, the biggest species. And that includes not only all your summer squashes, patty pan, yellow crookneck, zucchinis, those are all pepos, as are all the true pumpkins, jack-o'-lantern pumpkins, and as are a few of the things like spaghetti squash, acorn squash, and some of the gourds. Those are all pepos, and they will all cross with each other. But it's handy if you also know that most of the winter squashes, buttercup squash, Hokkaido, a lot of those, those types of squash, the ones that you, st you basically have dry, sweet flesh, and they have a quirky, knobby stem as opposed to the ridge stem that the pepo has, those are all cucurbita maxima. And they will all cross within themselves, but they will not cross-pollinate with the pepos. And there's still a third species that's handy to know about, and that is the butternut squashes. Those ones with the large neck, the beige-colored uh, squashes, uh, those are cucurbita moschata. And they will all cross among themselves. There are several varieties of those, but they will not cross with any of the others. So that's handy, because that means in any given year, I can have in my garden one zucchini variety growing. I can have buttercup squash growing, and I can have butternut squash growing, and save seed from all of those without doing anything special, without isolating them, without hand pollinating, which is a whole other uh, kettle of fish to deal with, and be all right. But I do not want to have in the same garden a zucchini growing and some pumpkins growing. You will end up with some really uh, funky looking crosses of those things, which generally are useless. So, so separating them by distance is probably the most straightforward way. Have them in two different places. That only works if you have enough space. You can have a garden here and another mini garden, a little seed plot, at least 100 meters away from it, ideally further. So they're not likely to be crossed by, by, pollen, by insects going back and forth. What is enough distance depends on several factors. One is what is between those two isolations. I call them those plots isolations. If you have in between them a big hayfield full of clover and all kinds of wildflowers and stuff growing, then you're in much better shape because by the time, a, let's say, a honeybee goes back and forth from one isolation to the hive and back to the hive and back to the hive, and by the time he gets filled up and empties out and gets to the other isolation, he'll basically have shed all of that pollen behind pretty much. As opposed to if you've got two isolations and between them you have a paved parking lot. Okay, so as soon as he gets done at one isolation, goes to the other and there's much more like chance of crossing. Another factor is how important how much purity do you absolutely have to have? Because if you have two extremely rare varieties, which is often the case with me, but not with most gardeners, you have two varieties, you're the last person on the planet that has them, they're gonna go extinct, and you have to keep them very pure. Well, then you're really the surest way of doing this to put one isolation, one in, growing in your garden, and the other one on Venus. And, and cross your fingers, because all those, some of those asteroids, apparently meteorites on it carry some kind of materials of life. So anyway, that's the extreme case. Somewhere in between them, maybe you have two varieties of carrots, which you're saving, for example, and they're both wonderful varieties. Let's say you've got red cord chantonet and scarlet gnats, two superb varieties. And, and a cross of those, if you did get a cross, not the end of the world, it's, it's got, I assume it's gonna be a pretty elegant variety, even if they do cross, but most importantly, those varieties are both carried by a lot of seed companies. So if and when you do get one crossed up and you decide I gotta get some fresh seed, no big deal. Again, if you have some variety very rare and you can't go back and get, then your, your restraints are much tighter. So, so that's crossing by using distance to keep things pure. But the other one that you were alluding to is using time.
One of the methods that some people use that's recommended, but I don't think in Maine it's very practical, is crossing, planting, staggering your plantings within the season. For example, if you've got two corn varieties, plant one very early corn, another one mid-season or something, so that their pollen shed time hopefully doesn't overlap. Maine, we have a shorter season. I think it's very problematic to do that. You're going to very likely have some overlap. I don't recommend it. But you can have different things in different years. And again, it's important that the seed is viable for much more than one year. So let's say we mention those two carrot varieties. Let's say every year I grow both varieties in my garden to eat because I love them both. But I only save seed of, in other words, overwintering one variety and letting it fall and go to make flower stalks the second year because they're biennials. I only do that this year with my scarlet nance. And I'll get enough seed from it for the next three, four, five years. And next year, I'll grow it to eat, but I won't save any seed. Next year, I'll only save the red cord chantonet seed. And by a strategy like that, not only can one person save more varieties, but we can have a community strategy. For example, you and I, Holly, could, let's say we both love that variety. We're both going to grow them, we're going to eat them, but you take care of the scarlet ants, and I'll do the red cord chantonet, whether we do it every year or whatever. The key to that thing is I've got to know that I can trust you. And you've got to know that I can, you can trust me. Am I competent? Maybe I don't know the fact that your garden is surrounded by Queen Anne's lace or wild carrot, and you don't know that, so you're clueless. Or you just you don't have a good place of storing things. We have to know that about each other. So basically, we're acting like a mini seed company. And those can be very good strategies, not only for maintaining a larger number of varieties, but keeping a larger population size. If we want to keep the whole entirety of that variety, all of its genetic the uh, germplasm, the base for that, we'd like to have a fairly large number of plants to save seed of, otherwise you get inbreeding. So this, that, that kind of a strategy can help with that. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU 89.9 FM. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and on today's show, we're learning about seed saving and fruit tree grafting in advance of Mosca's annual seed swap and cyan exchange which will be held on Sunday, March 24th from noon to 4 p.m. at the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in Unity, Maine. The event is free and open to the public. You can learn more about it by visiting Mosca's website, mosca.org. I'm currently talking about seed saving with Will Bonzel. Just jumping in to, to talk a little bit more about isolation, carrots, reminded me of this, another strategy that's sometimes used are, are physical isolations. And you mentioned that carrots have a, a wild relative, Queen Anne's lace, that could make it quite challenging to have a purity condition for growing carrots. So are there physical barriers that are employed for seed saving? And what, what are some examples of those? I'm thinking of like exclusion netting for insects. Like caging, for example? Correct. Okay, good. Now, yeah, that's very possible to do. It's another step higher. I certainly would not recommend it for beginners, but the strategy I've often used in my scatter seed project, there was one year I had, I think it was at least 20 varieties that I grew the year before, and they're biennials, so which means that I grew the root this year and overwinter them, and next year I've got to plant them back out. Now, the first year of the year I'm planting on them, there's no sex going on. It's just a vegetative part. I haven't got to worry about it. I can grow them all in my little garden just like in the same plot. But by the second year, when I take them out of my root cellar and replant them, I need to have them in isolated plots, each one so many feet apart. Well, let's say that year I didn't have 20 isolated plots available. So the other strategy I went with, caging. And I usually say to people, kids, don't try this in your own home. But it's certainly doable. I, I made a lot of cages with just uh, uh, wooden framing 
and uh, nylon or aluminum window screening covering them. And each one is big enough to have, I don't know, 20 or 30 plants, which is a minimum in it. That works very nicely in one respect. It keeps all the natural ambient pollinators out of all the surfeit flies and honeybees and stuff. They can't get into that cage. As long as they keep that cage tight, then they can't get in. So every seed that forms in there will be pure. The problem is many of those, I'd say most of those biennial species are what we call obligate outcrosses. In other words, they can't, they're self-sterile. They can't pollinate themselves, even if there's two, two blossoms on the same plant. Even though those, most of those species have what we call perfect blossoms. It simply means they have boy parts and girl parts in the same blossom, each one of them. Okay, so that's okay. So for far as that goes, you think, well, then therefore I can have just one plant and they can sell, pollinate themselves, but they generally will not. There's kind of a built-in biological anti-incest mechanism that they will not accept their own pollen to avoid, the, they, they themselves know how to prevent inbreeding. And so in a case like that, you need more, on the one hand, you need more than one plant to get any seed at all, but who's gonna be the vector? What's gonna carry the, the pollen from one plant to the other? If you've kept all the flies, bees and things out of there, Plant breeders sometimes do this with like a um, Q-tip or a paintbrush or something. You know, for, that's the only thing that makes the seed very expensive, like a, a buck per seed or something. But the practical way to do it is to introduce pollinators. And I get mine from an insectary company in uh, Ventura, California. You can them, order them and they they come parcel post in a little a little styrofoam packet. And they're very cheap. They're amazing. It used to be like uh, $25 for 500 or a couple thousand, whatever. Maggots. What you're getting is maggots. Hey, this is America. You can buy anything. And, and they come uh, second day air and you put some of those in that cage and they hatch out and they'll do the pollinating. That works. There's a lot of more tricks that I'm mentioning here. It basically works fine. You can do it, but if you can avoid that, I, I'd urge you to save that till you get much more into this. Yeah, definitely a more advanced method. So circling back to just seed saving more generally, you mentioned at the the top of the show that you like saving seed for selecting plants that fit better into your system. If you're noticing traits like earliness or flavor. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how selection work comes into seed saving work. Yeah. And selection, to quote the bumper sticker, selection happens. Whether you select or mother nature selects, some plants are going to overwinter better in your garden than if you had a garden in Maryland or something where the climate is different, where the pests are different. So that itself, what kind of a year it is, hot year, dry year, whatever, some varieties, they're selected anyway, whether you select them or not. So you've, it's really good to have some idea in your mind. The more precise, the better, but still, it's got to have a good idea of what you're looking for and what you're selecting for. It's also important to know what that variety is distinguished by. For example, I've known some people to take, let's say some Amsterdam forcing carrots, those little crisp little salad carrots. And you get a whole bunch of, you grow them, you want to save seed or some of them. And you, you dig them up and you lay them out and you look at them and say, oh my goodness, this one's much bigger than the others. I'm going to save seeds of that and use that. And now you're being a plant breeder and you may be doing exactly what you want or you may be doing exactly what you don't want. Because very likely that larger carrot is going to give you much later seeds later carrots and not the crisp tender thing we want for a salad or whatever. So know what you're looking for. Also select by the whole plant. Sometimes someone may look at a row of tomato plants 
and say, this one here has got one tomato on it that's earlier than all of the rest of them. The others that come along behind it, but this is the first one. So if I save seeds from that, won't I get earlier tomatoes? Not necessarily. Look at the whole plant, because maybe that's got one by a fluke, one very early one, the rest of them are, are, are weeks away from maturity. And then some other plant in the in that row that where they, none of them are ready quite yet, but they're all coming along very quickly. So you've got to look at, consider the entire plant, not just an individual fruit, because the tomatoes on that plant are basically all gonna have those same characteristics, whether they manifest it equally or not. Will, do you have any resources for people who are interested in exploring seed saving further? Yeah, there are a few that particularly come to mind. One, probably the most comprehensive book is Seed to Seed by Suzanne Ashworth. That's a very advanced comprehensive book and I recommend it to anyone. In one of my own books called Will Bonsall's Essential Guide to Radical something or other of gardening, the title wasn't my idea by the way, there's a unit in there on seed saving which is pretty extensive and I would recommend that too. Great. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. It's been great. For the second half of today's show, we'll be learning about grafting fruit trees. I'm joined by CJ Walk, the Orchard Program Manager with the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. CJ coordinates all of MOFCA's orchard activities on their grounds in Unity with a focus on maximizing the educational opportunities for visitors and Common Ground Country Fair attendees. He works with other MOFCA staff and volunteers to manage the 10-acre educational and preservation-focused Maine Heritage Orchard, which is home to nearly 400 varieties of apples and pears historically grown in Maine. Longtime listeners of Common Ground Radio will recognize CJ as one of its former hosts. Hi, CJ. Welcome to the show. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. We just learned about seed saving for garden crops. However, orchard fruits such as apples and pears don't grow true from seed, meaning if you harvest seed from an apple variety, such as a liberty apple, and plant it, the tree that grows from that seed will not produce liberty fruit. Why is that? And how do fruit producers ensure trueness to variety? Yeah, so true that the majority of fruit trees are not going to grow true to type from seed. And primarily the fact there is that that Liberty apple tree that you mentioned, when those flowers are open in the spring, the pollen that comes in to pollinate those flowers and to eventually produce the fruit can be from a number of different varieties or apple trees or even crab apple trees that may be in your vicinity. So that genetic makeup of the two, we know Liberty is one and we can maybe call it the mother, but the the other parent side of the pollen, we really don't know what that's coming from without you know, a lot of really focus on breeding and how certain uh, newer varieties are developed. But just out there in the wind, the pollen is coming in on insects and whatnot, and we really don't know what that other half is. So the only way to really truly propagate that variety and get the same variety that we want, Liberty or what have you, is to graft that onto another tree. And there's various ways about going about that. And, and we can get into some of those options here. Perfect, yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty of grafting. Can you walk me through the process of grafting fruit trees sort of from the basics for like a beginner standpoint? Okay, from a beginning standpoint, a couple things to just keep in mind really is that 
if you're looking to propagate a certain variety, you are using cyan wood of that variety or the scion is that variety that you're looking to propagate. And so that wood is typically one-year-old wood from the variety that you want and usually collected during the dormant season if we're talking about early spring bench grafting. And then we're grafting that cyan wood onto either a rootstock, and we're talking apples, we're either grafting onto an apple rootstock that we've purchased, or we can go about top working, which is grafting onto an existing tree already growing if you wanted to change over a variety or graft onto a wild seedling tree that's in a good location. So there's a few different methods and a few different times that we go about it, but essentially we are taking that scion of the variety we want and grafting it on to another apple tree. We're gonna stick with apples uh, for that to heal and to grow. So kind of within that realm, we can think about bench grafting, generally called bench grafting, which is something we would do late winter, early spring. And that's when we have purchased rootstock from a nursery, small little apple trees essentially grown for their roots. We usually think of fruit trees grown for the fruit, but rootstock are really grown for the roots. And that is what is going to determine the overall size and vigor and whatnot of the variety that we're grafting. So bench grafting at that time, putting those two, you kind of have it all right there in front of you, hence the term kind of bench grafting. When we talk about top working, where we maybe wanted to change over to a new variety because we're not happy with what we have, or even adding multiple varieties to the same tree, that's typically done in the month of May, more or less for us here in, in the Northeast. When we do that type of top working, we really want the sap to be running in the, in the tree. So that when we go to make incisions into the bark of that existing tree, we really want the bark to slip, you know, quote unquote slip, meaning that the sap is running, it's nice and pliable. You can cut and play with it and make your graft unions where other times of the year, you might be tearing bark. It's just not gonna be as easy to work with. And then kind of the third period of grafting that's possible is bud grafting in the summer, which is usually a late July or early August piece. And at that time, we're usually <clears throat> grafting onto rootstock that is growing in the ground and we're using buds from the tree that had just grown that previous season or earlier in that season. So those buds have developed and we're taking a one little bud off of the one-year-old recent shoot, or not even one-year-old, but that year's growth and grafting that on to an existing rootstock in the ground. Um, so there's kind of three different windows of opportunities for grafting. The techniques are a little bit different at the different times, but essentially you're taking either a piece of cyan wood or a bud from the variety you want and putting it onto something that's going to be like the rootstock and produce the structure of the tree over time. Great. So just digging a little deeper into rootstock, there are different 
sizes of apple trees. So there are dwarf apple trees and standard size apple trees. And that, as you're saying, is determined by the rootstock that you purchase and then graft onto. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. The vigor of the root system will be kind of the determining factor of the overall size of the tree when it is mature. We can start at the standard end or seedling end, full-size grown tree for apples. Antonovka is the typical rootstock that is used for that. So those are trees that left unpruned and on their own would grow as large, typically as large as like a wild seedling tree or close to it. Maybe too big to even manage depending on your situation. But they're long-lived, extremely hardy, and pretty much that's commonly what we see for standard varieties here in the Northeast. But then you can work your way kind of down through semi-standard, semi-dwarf to dwarfing. And the majority of those rootstocks have been bred over time for their characteristics, whether it's controlling the size of the overall tree or some resistance to different pests or disease in different situations. But essentially, as you kind of move down into the smaller towards the dwarf trees, um, you're looking at trees that are not going to grow 25, 30 feet tall. Maybe they're just going to be 16 to 20, or you could get down to some of the dwarf trees that are really maybe only going to be managed at like an eight foot tall tree. And depending on your space, depending on what you're looking to do, maybe you don't have room in your yard for a 25 foot tall tree. So you're gonna think in the more semi-dwarf range or even dwarfing range. But there's considerations within that whole spectrum of needs where the standard seedling tree full size is gonna live probably longer than the person that plants it or grafts it. But you get down into the dwarfing size and maybe you only have a couple good decades of production from that fruit. It's a lot smaller, but you can pack a lot more in. But when you get in that dwarfing end, usually those dwarf rootstock trees require uh, a lot more maintenance. Like they do require staking. The root system is not vigorous enough to actually just hold the tree up on its own. So they typically all need support, probably some irrigation, uh, especially in dry times. And oftentimes they're mulched heavily or kept weed free just to limit the competition there. Within the rootstock realm, apples by far have the vast majority of options, just research that's been done over time and the size of the industry. Pears, there's really only a couple that we work with for rootstocks. And then we get into kind of the stone fruit realm. It's very similar. There's some newer developments out there, but really only a few, few options that have been tried and tested for our region. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM 89.9. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm currently talking about grafting fruit trees with CJ Walk, Mofka's Orchard Program Manager. Today's episode is focused on all things seed and scion related. If you're interested in learning more, you can check out Mofka's annual seed swap and scion exchange. This free, family-friendly event will be held on Sunday, March 24th from noon to 4 p.m. at the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in Unity. Mofka's website mofka.org has more information. So cyan wood is the wood that's collected from the known variety that you want to graft. How 
is cyan wood harvested and what tools are needed for harvest? What are some considerations for storage? So if you're harvesting it and then bench grafting, is it different than if you're harvesting it and then top working, which has a later time frame in the season? Yeah, the, the cyan wood when we're out pruning in the dormant season, like here in the main heritage orchard, we started right the first week of January to start working on the few hundred trees we have to prune. So the cyan wood is going to be last year's growth. So typically, you know, that's the the tips of the shoots or the branches that are out there. We'll make our pruning cuts to work on, you know, the reason why we're pruning the tree. And then just go through the the limbs and things that we've cut off and and snip off those one-year-old shoots. Maybe they're only six inches long, but if there's some vigorous growth, they could be 16, 18 inches long. So while we're pruning the tree, we will go around and collect all the cyan wood off the limbs that we've pruned off, all that one-year-old wood. And then we essentially bundle them together, wrap a little bit of duct tape around the base, label it with the variety that we have, and then when we store it, we are using thick contractor bags and triple bagging all of this cyan wood and storing it in our walk-in cooler here where we have apples in storage. For the homeowner, using your refrigerator is, is fine or a place that's going to be really cool. What we want to do is make sure that that cyan wood stays dormant and it stays cold, but it does not freeze. We really don't want it to freeze and we don't want it to dry out. So you can find some recommendations about adding like a damp piece of paper towel to just have a little bit of moisture. Too much moisture will cause you problems on the other end. Uh, but typically, like when we're storing dozens and dozens of varieties in bags, I'm not doing anything. There's moisture in the bag. When we open those bags up later, the wood is a little bit damp, keeping it dormant and keeping it cold, but not frozen until you go to use it on grafting is really the goal we're looking for. So that will be what we harvest, have collected last month in January. We'll be fine for bench grafting in March and early April. And it is typically fine to be using if we're getting into May and doing some top working at that point. For folks who are new to pruning and collecting cyan wood, is it easy to distinguish the scions from the other pruned wood that you're you're taking off the trees? Yeah, so that cyan wood in the dormant season, one-year-old growth, typically the tips of the shoots. But if you look at the end of that shoot, you'll see the terminal bud on the end which is really fat and pronounced. If you work your way back down the stem, you'll see all of the side buds, which are really kind of like future leaf buds for the next year. But you'll get down to the point where you'll see kind of that growth collar or growth ring of where the terminal bud was the previous year. So it's maybe an eighth inch to a quarter inch wide band of like wrinkled skin, which is pretty obvious. And that newer growth on apples is typically like a purplish, reddish kind of color. And as you work your way back and you get to the two-year-old wood and older, it tends to look a little more gray. So you can see a little bit of color difference between the two. But finding that spot where last year's terminal bud was and those growth rings there, um, it's pretty, pretty obvious once you 
once you see it for the first time. Mofka has an annual event, the Seed Swap and Scion Exchange, which has been happening for 40 years now, and it's coming right up. On March 24th, attendees will have the opportunity to swap scions, taking home apple and pear specimens from Mofka's collection, as well as the USDA's Plant Genetic Resources Unit in Geneva, New York, and the National Clonal Germplasm Repository in Corvallis, Oregon. What is special about this opportunity and what will be available for folks at the swap? What's fantastic about the event is that there are probably hundreds of varieties of cyan wood that you could have access to for, for free at our event. We do appreciate it if you bring, you know, known and labeled varieties, accurately labeled varieties to share as well. But it's really a primary way of disseminating this genetic material for all these various varieties. What's great about this year's event is that we have gained access to cyanwood from different USDA repositories for apple and pear that is, is typically not available to the general public. Usually that plant material is saved for research projects or breeding projects, but the work that we've been doing with preserving heritage varieties in the Maine Heritage Orchard and with our partners elsewhere in the state and around the country, we've proven that you know we're serious about the work that we're doing and a good way to get some of this more rare material that is just not commonly found or easily accessed from the USDA and being able to utilize it for some of it for our own purposes, but also to be able to share that with some of you know, like serious fruit growers and experienced grafters to get some more varieties out there. So you mentioned Mafka's Maine Heritage Orchard, which is a 10-acre preservation orchard located in Unity, Maine. Will the germ repositories be used to add to Mofka's collection? Yeah, there are some, and we're still figuring out the, the finer details there, but there's definitely a group of them that we'll be able to add to the orchard. We do have limited available space, so trying to prioritize that at, at this point with the main heritage orchard is a little bit of a you know strategic juggle based on kind of like the rareness of, of that variety. But there are some that we're looking to add there but also just looking to be able to share this material with other, other folks. Between the work with MOFCA and collaborating with Fedco, you know, we've, we've proven that our area, we've got some serious folks that are going to take pride in the work and, you know, really take care of this material moving forward. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Maine Heritage Orchard, maybe we could step back and you can paint a little bit of a picture about that project and the vast diversity that's already encapsulated in that collection. Sure, yeah, kind of like the, the snapshot of the Maine Heritage Orchard is property here on Mofka's Maine campus here in Unity, Maine. And in about 2013, started the groundwork there. The location is a former gravel pit, essentially, on a neighboring property that Mofka had acquired a, a few a year or two prior to that, but spent a year with doing a massive amount of groundwork to stabilize banks and build these terraces on a very steep slope with lots of help from partners 
NRCS engineering to manage waterways and all that. But essentially a 10 acre area, majority of which is, is terraced for stabilizing slopes, but also creating a spot where we could plant all of these trees. So the majority of the trees are apples, but we do have a couple dozen pear varieties. The varieties that we are focused on are varieties that were historically grown in Maine, kind of early before World War II era, let's say, but focusing on varieties that we know through historic records, like through the Maine State Department of Agri Agriculture and the Pomological Society, varieties that were showing up at meetings and fairs in the 1800s that we just don't see much of anymore. So it's a really kind of like massive collaborative effort to find these varieties, to verify them, and to get them grafted, propagated, and planted out in the main heritage orchard so that we can now grow out these trees. We can collect cyan wood, we can propagate more, learn more about the fruit, share all that information, and hopefully see more and more of these varieties grown around the state and around the region. So we're really kind of three areas we're thinking it was, it was a massive restoration project considering the condition of the land when the project started just over 10 years ago. The preservation of these rare varieties, some of which are, or a lot of which are considered extremely rare, and then really educating about the work and the varieties and everything that we do there, as well as organic and holistic orcharding practices. So from the education standpoint, there's a pretty cool database on Mofka's website that's sort of like a catalog of the apple varieties and you can kind of search them by what you want to use an apple for. Like if you're like a hardcore baker and you want the best pie apples in existence in, you know, this historical main catalog, you can search through there. I'm wondering if you have any favorite main apples that people who might be coming to the Seaswap and Sign Exchange should know about what are your favorite apples that's always a tough question so i get cheeky with my reply and say the organically grown apple is my favorite apple but personally with within kind of the range of apples i tend to prefer russets and pear mains just because of their texture and their flavor, not necessarily a super sweet apple or a really acidic apple in off, oftentimes within that range, that kind of grouping. They're a little more drier, but I just feel like the, the flavors there for fresh eating, they just really stand out for me. But also within there, a lot of those russets do really well in storage. And some of those keeping varieties, the flavors kind of improve over time as you get starch is going to sugars and things like that in, in storage. It's part of my job to focus on these rare varieties. I usually don't get attached to any one specific variety. A lot of times I'm really focusing on the condition of the tree and how well it is growing in order to, in order to produce that fruit. In terms of the health of the overall tree, I'm sure there are a lot of environmental and site-specific factors, but all things equal, if you're using the same rootstock, like say you're using the Malice Antonovka rootstock, how much does the grafted variety come into play in terms of things like disease resistance or like susceptibility to insects or climate? 
can the variety have an impact on the overall health of a tree? Uh, yes, for sure. If we get into a little bit of like the newer, more developed or recently developed varieties that have bred in some disease resistance, usually focused on apple scab, which for us in the Northeast is like the primary fungal disease, then those characteristics are taken over from the tree because of the variety. When we start to look at some of the heritage varieties that we're growing, we do notice different levels of susceptibility. We do notice some that tend to have more susceptibility to a disease or less to say a pest. So we can harvesting fruit, notice some that don't seem to have a lot of apple sawfly damage on them when we know that that pest is present and we're seeing damage on other varieties. So the variety that you choose, you can choose for characteristics around, is it fresh eating? Does it store well? Does it make great cider? Does it make great applesauce? But you can also think about how can I kind of ease my management of the fruit tree based on the characteristics of that variety, especially if you're just a backyard grower with a few trees, not looking at commercial production, or you really want to be in more of like a no spray or low intervention kind of fruit cultivation. Well, thank you for joining me today. Looking forward to the upcoming seed swap and sign exchange. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Holly, and hope to see everyone at the seed swap and sign exchange on March 24th. This has been Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as the WERU app. A special thanks to my guests for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the show's editor, Claire Bolin, and give a special thanks to Caitlin Barker, my former co-host, for her contributions to Common Ground Radio. I'll miss sharing the airwaves with you, Caitlin. Stay tuned for more great programming.